Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and your host today is Carla Reffold. We are joined by Adam Nygate, the founder of 418SEC. Adam has taken the opportunity to work and live across Europe, Southeast Asia and Australia before returning to the UK to work in security within the government. After working at BJSS, he opted to start 418SEC with the help of Cylon, the cybersecurity accelerator. 418SEC was designed to help secure the world's open source code. Hope you enjoy it. Beecher Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. So Adam, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking to us as part of this series. It's, uh, I'm really excited to find out a little bit more about the journey. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with you and your background. Where did you grow up? Uh, so London, funnily enough. Um, so I, I guess I lived in London till I was about um, 15, 16 years old. Uh, just came out of um, GCSEs and I was actually mid-A-levels mid where um, my family decided that, you know, we all wanted to, to move somewhere new. And so I spent um, a few years out in Singapore um, and finally I uh, I also kind of like you know, left the, the, the nest and um, moved to Australia for about uh, five years and, and then moved back to, to London um, about, I don't know, four years ago or so. Um, but yeah, I grew up here in London. So that was a really crucial time in your education to move. Um, what did that What did that do education-wise for you? Was it a problem or was it okay? Oh, no, it was a big problem uh, because so I, I left the UK without having, you know, any AE levels, not even AS levels. So um, when I arrived in Singapore, um, trying to kind of identify a path that um, allowed me to continue on with my education was really, really difficult, especially because their, their system is really quite different from ours. Um, and uh, so I tried to go down, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the normal education routes for finding a place to, that would allow me to either continue um, A-levels or do something more international like the IB, um, but I, I basically I couldn't. Um, so I, I just decided to, you know, get on with it, get into the, to the workforce, and I managed to find um, an Australian company um, who took me on as a, as a software developer based upon kind of like my profile of like freelance stuff that I'd done before that, um, you know, just simple PHP websites and that kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, eventually after I had a, a few years of experience on my belt, that's when I applied for university and, and got in on what they call a portfolio entry. So that's where, you know, just demonstrating talent through, pra you know, through practical circumstance rather than getting in through, you know, an academic track record. I would assume that's built some resilience into you, though. Uh, resilience, how so? Uh, just personal resilience. If you've got to totally pivot on what you wanted to do yeah. education-wise. Definitely, definitely. Uh, yeah, so always, always have kept me on my toes, you know, looking, you know, what's the, 
what's the kind of alternate way into things? And I guess that kind of helps with the whole like hacker mindset and all that kind of stuff, because I'm always looking, you know, for loopholes and, um, and yeah, non-conventional uh, means of, of getting things done. So when did you first hear about security? Oh, um, security. Uh, from a defensive standpoint, um, I don't know, probably when I was about uh, 18, 19, uh, probably a few years into that company, um, because uh, I was, you know, looking for, you know, what should I do for my degree? What should I, what should I you know, look to develop as a career? Um, and I uh, started hearing more about, you know, information security, cyber security, examining the, the courses that are available to, you know, um, teach in this type of domain. Um, but kind of like from the reverse perspective, you know, from a hacking perspective, I was actually quite um, aware of it since I was very young, um, having spent a bit of my youth, uh, you know, kind of getting in trouble with police um, over some, you know, some of the not so... Uh, legal areas of, uh, of security. If you're, if you're getting that sort of attention, you must have been relatively good at it. Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I think my parents would, uh, would say the opposite. Um, but uh, no, at the time, I think I was uh, ahead of the curve in the early days. Uh, but I think it was just because I was you know, so exposed to you know, computers, the internet, um, technology from a very young age. Um, and uh, you do you you wonder how these things work and um, what you can make them do. You pick up you know basic programming languages and you you, you know you just start experimenting. And I, I guess it kind of just you know the, the snowball started rolling from there. So did that exposure come from your parents? Yeah, yeah. My my dad uh, he claims a lot of responsibility here. Uh, because he, you know, is always like, oh, I, I bought you boys uh, your first computer when you were, you know, seven years old or whatever, you know, dial up on an on a old Macintosh and all this type of stuff. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, he's quite proud of where, you know, all myself and my siblings have got to um, because we're all quite techies and, you know, working with quite low level things. So how did you come up with the idea for your company? Oh, so uh, when I returned from Australia, um, so that was about yeah four years ago, roughly, um, I started working at the cabinet office, um, a part of it called GDS, the Government Digital Service. And I was actually leading um, a security architecture team there. Um, and during my time there, um, you know, as with many organizations, they have security incidents. And, uh, you know, a few of these were linked to, you know, open source vulnerabilities. Um, you know, some being kind of intentional. So that's where like a hacker has placed like a, ba a black uh, a back door into a open source component, um, which has then been exploited to get into to your systems or unintentional stuff. So that's, you know, where, you know, there's just been a logical issue um, or some, you know, unmaintained, untidy code, which is, has um, let somebody do something nefarious. Um, and so that was going on there and uh, my boss one day came to me, Adam, how can we solve this problem? And that's when I started looking into it and I kind of realized that although there are some tools out there that try to address this problem, they, they address it quite poorly. Um, and so, I don't know, it didn't really sit right with me. And so I kind of left it on my back burner for, for about a year and a half. And then um, one day uh, I kind of had a light bulb moment. Um, I was actually working in a consultancy at the time and I was talking to one of my clients and they were saying um, how they kind of addressed this problem. 
Um, and what they did is they created effectively a committee within their organization that um, reviewed every single piece of open source code that came into the org that was you know requested to be used by their developers. Um, and uh, and then when, if it was approved, it was added to like this walled garden, this assured list of open source code for the organization. Um, but uh, this whole process takes a long time, weeks if not months. So developers are, are waiting weeks if not months for this uh, this to be a-okayed. Um, and also, you're like these organizations are spending a lot of time, a lot of money on really quite important people like lead developers, technical architects, who are then um, you know, not doing their normal day-to-day -day job of, you know, developing features and functions for their end users, but instead are, are sat there reviewing open source code. And that, and that, that kind of idea, this whole, I don't know, assurance of open source code by committee um, kind of became the spark for 418SEC, the, the company that I built today. So once you had this light bulb moment, what did you do next? Hmm. Um... I spent probably about six months kind of like refining it. So um, really diving deep into the business model, like could this economically be feasible? You know, it, does the technology work? Like could, could we technically implement it using available tech suites and all that kind of stuff? Um, and then validation, going, speaking to um, potential customers, people, knowledgeable people, people who are just, in my case, you know, in the open source ecosystem, in that sphere of knowledge, um, and uh, and seeing how they react to this this proposal. Um, I did that for about six months, and then once I kind of got to a sufficient point, I was just like, okay, um, time to to actually build something. And so I spent about a, a weekend, or you know, a long weekend, um, writing our our initial uh, proof of concept. Um, and uh, tested it. It worked beautifully. Um, and and uh, after that, I kind of decided that I want to go on full time on it. And uh, yeah, and that's the the journey we've we started about nine months ago now. So in the beginning, was it just you, or did you have people working with you? Uh, very beginning, it was just me. And then short uh, during that whole like six months. Um, uh, time period where I was, I was validating idea. I was kind of reaching out to some old contacts, old friends who I thought, um, you know, could be really great um, in this type of uh, business. Um, and so I brought on two co-founders, uh, one technical, one a marketing specialist who, um, you know, could help uh, flesh out the, the offering and, and can help me build it. Now, that often is something that can be a real challenge, you know, getting people around you that have the right skills, but also that you trust and can work with. So they, you said they were friends of yours. Have you, have you found that to be an, an easy journey to navigate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think we were very fortunate that we actually loved that. So um, my co-founders, we actually all went to the same high school together. So um, we've known each other for, I don't know, you know, a decade uh, plus um, and so um, we, you know, we're all very banterous in school and whatnot. And then uh, moving, um, kind of leveraging that 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 almost childish, friendly relationship in this type of in this type of situation is really nice because you know it means that you can work long, work hard hours, but also have fun and kind of de-stress. Um, so yeah, I think I was very very fortunate um, finding two friends to to join me on this journey. So you also have been through one of the accelerator programs. So how did you go about getting accepted into that? 
Um, Cylon. So uh, Cylon, yeah, the, the cybersecurity incubator. Um, I initially heard about them, I think it was on Reddit, actually. And I saw one of their posts saying that they were going to run this cybersecurity entrepreneur boot camp. Um, and I think they run it, um, I don't know, maybe twice a year. And it's called Hut Zero. Uh, and it was an incredible program. So it was just um, five days in their offices in Hammersmith where they um, basically educate you on, on how to be a cyber entrepreneur. So they um, did these sessions every day where you'd meet, um, you know, their, their co-founders, their entrepreneurs that have gone through their main uh, accelerator program. Um, and they would, you know, talk to you on, on their journeys, their kind of top tips for success, including... Uh, you know, what does like equity division look like between co-founders? What does investment and fundraising look like? What does early sales look like? Um, and they also had this kind of like speed dating where they would invite, you know, senior vice presidents, uh, directors and whatnot of organizations like Deutsche Bank and um, Dropbox and all that kind of stuff. And you could um, kind of use that 20 minute speed dating session for whatever you needed it for. So if you wanted to talk to them about um, validation or, you know, fundraising or or whatever it might be, um, it was just a, a networking opportunity. Um, and that was that was really good. Um, and then so I started with Hut Zero. Then later on, um, once I'd kind of developed my idea further, developed that prototype, I uh, I um, applied um, with with the actual idea to to um, uh, Cylon, which is their you know main main uh, incubator, which was that three month program, uh, which is it basically takes that five uh, five day thing and turn it into three months, and it culminates in a in a in a pitch to uh, basically every London VC at the end, um, and that was really really great. At, on the back of that, we got our two first um, customers clients. Um, and uh, so many uh, investment leads that uh, I think we had about one uh, one VC meeting a day throughout December and January. Um, so it was a really good resource to for to to to, to fundraise um, for, for an entrepreneur. So have you taken investment? Yeah, we've done. Uh, we've taken uh, pre-seed fundraising, so a small amount just to kind of. Um, allow us to bring a few engineers on board and really push our, our um, solution from a from a prototype or a proof of concept into a you know a V1. So um, yeah, and we've actually just uh, we just closed the round about I don't know maybe f uh, two three weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So would you advise other founders, other security founders, to go through accelerators like Cylon? Absolutely. So funnily enough, I was talking to another founder, um, somebody who's just leaving fintech who wants to um, start uh, the next great cyber company. And I think he, w he was looking at it from a, a data security perspective. But I mean, generally speaking, incubators and especially Cylon are, are absolutely invaluable for, for cyber entrepreneurs. Um, they just they, they teach you, especially if you're, if you're like me, because I kind of came from a very techie background, um, like during kind of like um, over the last few years, just before I started up, um, I kind of entered into the commercial world and consultancy. Um, but I had no idea about stuff like what does selling a product look like or um, investment or, you know, law with, you know, what what is an articles of association? What does a shareholders agreement look like? Um, but, uh, you know, incubators like Cylon are designed to kind of upskill 
techies and and make them into you know more business rounded um or the opposite you know if you're purely business rounded you've never worked in the cyber domain before you can go into cylon and you'll learn so much about um what it's like to to sell tech software um to cso's and cto's now i wanted to ask you about that because sort of getting comfortable with pitching and and selling your product particularly if you are the person that has got the technical idea it can be a real challenge so how have you found that um, I think I'm kind of fortunate, um, because I don't think I'm as, um, I think techies get a bad rap and I think like a, a lot of techies out there kind of, um, if they try to, you know, talk to people, they may, you know, utilize too much technical language and it can be kind of like overwhelming for, for people who aren't, you know, techie. Um, but I don't. I think I, I was very fortunate to to, to not have that. Um, so I think that uh, I could quite well describe my 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 business, my product, to um, you know non cyber people and non techies uh, quite easily. Uh, but pitching is a whole thing entirely because you know um, you're. It's very different for when you're discussing your business to know two people three people versus a room of like 150 vcs um and uh you know your the nerves get to you um and you know you're looking into the crowd and you're seeing all these faces stare at you and uh, uh one of the most difficult things is um at least for for us is you know a lot of people they, they memorize those pitches and whether it be three minutes or five minutes it's, it's like quite a lot to memorize especially if um you only gave yourself a a few weeks to to do so. I remember that um, before we pitched at Cylon, we actually got invited to pitch at, at uh, Tech Invest, uh, which is run by the Mayor of London. It uh, it picked the kind of the best um, cy- the ten best cyber startups in London uh, to to pitch to the to the UK's British Angels uh, Association, and. Um, I remember that the week before, or week to 10 days before the pitch, um, I met with the MD of the UK BAA uh, to kind of do a demo pitch. And uh, I, you know, went into that. We had a deck together. We had the the, the speech um, together. And uh, I thought uh, it was great. Went into that meeting. At the end of the at the end of the pitch, he just goes. I don't get it. I don't. I don't understand what you do anymore. I understood from from you know the 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 form that you filled out and the application you made, what you did, but the the pitch you just presented. I don't understand what you do anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, that was like a week to go. And so we stayed up basically two or three days in a row, um, rewriting the deck, rewriting uh, the speech, <clears throat> and then saw him back on. I think it was Monday. Um, and uh, re-ran him through it, and he loved it. Um, but the only problem was, is it gave me like three days before the event to memorize it. Um, and so, yeah, it was pretty intense to to, to kind of get a five-minute pitch um, off by heart within three days. Um, so, yeah, that 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 can be very difficult. Um, but I think as long as you give yourself enough time and you prepare and whatnot, I think uh, it's not too bad. I mean, that sounds difficult. And to have so much riding on it as well, that must be really challenging. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's kind of like you've got this massive opportunity to, to, to speak to all of these angels and raise some money. Um, and who knows, you know, there might be even a few customers in the crowd. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you, if you muck up, if you hesitate, it can look really poorly on you. 
Um, and uh, and also from a kind of like um, not even from from the audience's perspective, but even for yourself, if like you know as you're reading it, if you if you hesitate, if you stumble, that can like completely throw you off your game, and then you don't know how to re get back into the speech and uh, and you know what some you know some people can I don't know have a have a panic attack or something. So um, I think uh, yeah, definitely taking time to kind of prepare. Uh, for public speaking is really, really important for entrepreneurs, especially like founders, um, you know, willing to talk on stage um, because on the basis that your startup's going to work, you know, you're not just going to be pitching to VCs. You're also going to be pitching to your employees um, and, and all, you know, whole, whole, whole other set of like stakeholders. So, um, yeah, it's really important for, for people to be, you know, on the game when it comes to public speaking. And again, just uh, tying that back. So yeah, Cylon, incredible that. I remember one of the things they did is they actually brought in a, a public speaking coach um, to come talk to us and to kind of do um, exercises with regards to our voice and the way we speak, which was really great. Wow. It certainly sounds like it was worth the, worth the time. Now, risk from open source code isn't something that gets a lot of attention in the cybersecurity space. Mm. So, why do you think that is? I think um, I think a lot of organisations are so worried about their own stuff, um, or like you know what's within their control. I think that's really it. I think a lot of organisations, um, you know, CISOs and whatnot, they think, okay, you know. What parts of my system can we protect with the, you know, the, the, the least amount of effort with the, with the least cost to me? And so, you know, whether that be, you know, putting in firewalls or, you know, putting in some kind of AppSec tooling to do basic vulnerability scanning um, or, or um, you know, th these kind of things. I think they, they, you know, will rush towards that because they see it as simple, um, you know, low cost and, and generally speaking, high reward, um, you know the most attacks out there today are kind of like, um, you know, wide attacks where they're just bots crawling over the internet and they just try to attack every single IP address. And the second they see, you know, SSH open on a port, it, you know, it just goes in um, and, uh, and we'll try to brute force it whatnot. Um, and so like putting in, you know, a firewall or, you know, a jump box or a VPN around that kind of SSH um, adds a lot of value. And generally speaking, it's not too costly. Um, but I think um, with regards to open source, I think there is a, a change in the market. First of all, I think that we're now seeing really massive attacks that leverage um, open source components. Um, Equifax, you know, a few years ago, 1.3 billion, absolutely massive. And then recently the British Airways attack, um, which cost them, I believe, about 500 million um, are, you know, the clear examples of, in uh, like a increasing amount of open source attacks. Um, and, uh, uh, but up until now, generally speaking, there wasn't much you could do about solving this problem. Um, kind of all the solutions readily open uh, on the market today are, I call them kind of like glorified antiviruses. Um, you know, you stick them in your, your um, production environments. Um, and what they'll do is they just scan your software for open source code. And when it when it finds something, it you know sends you an alert, it pings you saying, "Oh, I just found vulnerable package X." Um, and that's basically all they can do. Um, whereas the solution that we bring to market is like the fully managed and assured kind of end-to-end -end open source supply chain, where 
when an issue is discovered, 418SEC is responsible for developing and delivering to you a, a the, the security fix. So we'll actually, you know, engineer those security fixes on a code level and then and then send them to our customers. Do you think that people understand the risk that kind of that code um, can cause to a business? Um, I think most CISOs do. I think that they just don't know what to do about it. Um, I think kind of just looking at at it kind of like software from a um, kind of like a, a proportionality perspective. I mean, most software today is open source code. If you get you take any organization and you, you analyze their code base, you'd see that, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent of that code base is open source code. Um, but, you know, the majority of budget, the majority of spending goes to pay to, to pay for that. 10% of, of proprietary code. Um, I think, um, you know, most CISOs are now understanding that um, they should start being concerned about the code that their developers didn't write. Um, because, you know, you can control quality around your own proprietary code. You can you can put kind of like in the interview process, you can put gating mechanisms about, you know, what, you know, do, do, does my developer need to have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree? Do they need to know kind of like the OWASP top 10 and that kind of stuff? Um, but what about these open source people, right? You have no idea if your code is being written by a person in Derby or if it's being written by a person in, you know, Pyongyang, North Korea. Um, you don't know their motivations behind writing the code. You don't know if it's malicious or, or you know, um, nothing at all. Um, and uh, so there's there's very little quality control uh, that an organization can put on, um, you know, the, the consumption of open source code. Um, kind of developers have free reign in that area. You know, in most organizations, a developer will just, you know, download a, uh, any piece of open source code they want to use. Um, and that's where we come in, providing that accountability where, when an issue is found, you know, we become the ones accountable to, to fix it. Now, we hear a lot about how this is a crowded marketplace um, and CISOs have limited time and, and budget. So how are you going about getting in front of them and kind of standing out from that noise? That's a good question. I think I think it's, it's, a, it's a really tough one to, to, to kind of create a unique way that... Um, you can get your services and solutions in front of CISOs and, and CTOs. Um, I think that um, the kind of the, the cold calling days are, are over. I think that uh, anybody who who you know tries to cold call, cold email, you know, send LinkedIn messages. I think that um, there is no way that's going to be scalable, and there is no way that's going to be effective. Um, I think that um, conferences are really, really good, really, really valuable. You know, a lot of CISOs, a lot of um, risk owners and whatnot will go to conferences to check out the latest services and solutions. Uh, but for us specifically, we kind of have a unique offering. So we actually um, have a free tier. So what we do is we um, give our kind of basic base technology away for free, which just will uh, analyze um, open source security issues um, in in you know companies for free, um, and then uh, utilizing that data, we explain why our service is valuable. You know, if if an organization utilizes our free platform and it says to them, you know, they've got over a hundred security vulnerabilities and all of them are you know high of of at least high risk, that becomes a really good. Um, 
uh, way for CISOs to um, not just understand the value behind our offering, but also to leverage that data to then go to you know their CEO or their CFO, whomever approves the budget, and, and to fight for for um, for additional budget. I think that's really important that um, entrepreneurs realise that. Um, you're not just selling your offering to the CTO or the CTO or whomever the buyer is. You're, you're basically selling a business case to that person so they can then leverage that business case to get additional budget from, from whomever their boss is. Because um, uh, I, I think that's kind of like a, um, a sales philosophy that a lot of people don't realize. They, they kind of just think about, oh, we're selling this, you know, dashboard and it's going to be 10 quid a month and you're selling it to like a lead developer or whatnot but the lead developer generally speaking isn't the one who can approve the budget it's whomever you know their line manager is um so giving them the content the information to be able to go to ask for that budget is great because uh, first whatever your whatever is valuable um to that person uh, you know they're getting the value out of it but then kind of on a, on a side piece they're also um able to you know whomever you're kind of selling this technology to they're able to say you know they increase their budget they're able to put on their cv that you know they took their budget from being hundred thousand pounds annually to five hundred thousand pounds by leveraging business cases like yours um and so uh i think that's important that's the kind of stuff that we use to to um get uh, our offering across the customers I think that's a really good point because decisions are rarely made by one person. You might have to convince several people who are coming from different business areas. Exactly. And I think that's only more pertinent in cyber because like although people believe that, you know, if you're selling, I don't know, a firewall or whatever it might be, um, that you're selling it to the CISO or, you know, somebody like that in an organization, you're not. You're also going to be selling it to the CTO because they're, they're likely going to be the ones to have to implement it or have to have to maintain it, all of that kind of stuff. And then you've got the budget holder, the, C, the CFO, the COO, the, C, the CEO, whomever it might be, uh, depending upon what your, what your, you know, your, the value of the service is, who may have to sign off on that. So, yeah, creating business cases, well-rounded business cases, which meet the needs of many individuals, I think is very important. Um, and then identifying kind of champions in that, that organization who will fight um, for that business case um, is how you get kind of deals closed. Now, how have you seen security change since you started in the industry? I think there was very little security um, uh, in place when I, when I started. Um, I also think kind of security was a lot more basic. People, generally speaking, um, only kind of worried about the perimeter, you know, so WAFs, firewalls, um, you know, network security tooling. Um, I think kind of um, after I kind of had spent some time in the workforce, I think that um, people started following more best practice guidelines, you know, the NIST standards and whatnot. So they started keeping, you know, operating systems, servers more up to date, more patched, which is important. And I think um, with the kind of the whole migration for most companies, most enterprises to like DevOps and DevSecOps, I think we're now seeing that defense in depth really come to fruition where you're actually getting um, security involved in that development process. Um, you know, with, with kind of policy security rules being applied to, um, you know, code um, and, and trying to improve uh, that, that security on the application layer, uh, which I think is a really stark difference from, you know, when I started, uh, where 
when he talked about security, they were like, okay, let's just put a WAF uh, plugin in front of the IIS server, and the WAF plugin will either you know filter everything out or it will just block the requests. Now, DevSecOps is a huge area that's gaining a lot of traction. Do you think we are seeing that that work? You know, is security being considered at earlier stages? Um, I think I think um, companies who do DevSecOps right, sure. But I think DevSecOps is really quite difficult to do correct. I think you need to have a really mature engineering and um, security uh, capability in an organization to really get DevSecOps right. Um, I think um, the more important thing that, that DevSecOps brings to the table is just the awareness, right? Like where engineers are now becoming more conscious of the security of their application. They're no longer just thinking, okay, what functions do I have to deliver? Um, they're also thinking, you know, could this introduce, um, you know, new security issues? Because I think, I think kind of DevSecOps has really just been following in the footsteps of quality assurance, where, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe um, testing, automated testing as part of an application was kind of unheard of, um, you know, from a quality assurance perspective. And then companies started to realize that, you know what? We should invest time in quality assurance uh, because it, you know, and move it earlier in that development process, earlier in the pipeline, um, because it comes with all these benefits, like you know, more reliable deployments to production, less time wasted on on manual work for to, to do these testing, um, and and generally speaking, improving that that code quality. And I think that that's is exactly what's happening. Security, it's kind of like security testing is now being. Um, considered part of quality assurance. So we're, we're moving that earlier in the pipeline um, and we're saying to you kind of the developers, the BAs, the, uh, you know, the QAs and whatnot, we're saying to them, you guys now need to consider, you know, what are the security impacts of those features and how to kind of like mitigate risks around those, um, which I think is, is really important. Even if an organization isn't getting it right and it's not, they're not seeing um, the immediate benefits of like automated security testing. I think just taking those footsteps towards um, making those people more aware, making um, um, you know starting to to introduce some some form of automated tooling in, in, in earlier in the SDLC. I think that's that's really really important. And I think a lot of organisations are now kind of stepping in that direction. And what else do you think we're going to see? You know, what, what risks do you see coming out over the next couple of years? Hmm. I mean, without trying to toot my own horn, I think that open source is um, really going to become a big hitter. Just because of, um, like, so many startups, you know, so many tech companies are now, you know, popping up, you know, every, every single year. I mean, you know, how many years ago was it when we didn't have Del Deliveroo and Uber and Instacart and, and all these type of organizations. Um, and, and the reason why these companies, these startups can build so quickly is because they don't write all of the code themselves. They leverage that open source code. And so I think um, a big trend we'll start to see is open source. Um, although it is you know, ridiculously adopted now, I think we're only going to see it um, kind of skyrocket further because so many more companies will, will start leveraging it and will, um, will uh, you know, grow themselves on the back of it. And so I, start, I think we'll start seeing new types of supply chain attacks, stuff like, um, you know, not too long ago, we saw, we saw like the ESLint scope attack, which was 
um, basically, you know, hacking group targeted a package that was used in a lot of cryptocurrency wallets. Um, and so they, you know, wrote that backdoor, um, inject, you know, maliciously got um, the ability to kind of inject this code into that package um, and uh, spread it to all these Bitcoin wallets, which then, you know, any users of lost Bitcoins off the back of. Um, and I think that type of attack vector we'll see um, really more frequently. Like you can imagine, you know, so, so many e-commerce websites today, they all depend upon kind of like credit card validation scripts, you know, the, the CVV2 field. Um, and uh, there's not that many open source packages that, that do that kind of uh, analysis because it's quite basic. It's, it's quite an easy algorithm. And so people just download you know, the, the package off the Internet. Um, and you can imagine if somebody managed to introduce some malicious code into that, how much data exfiltration they'll be able to achieve um, because uh, every, every credit card form on the planet basically uses it. Um, so I think we'll, we'll see, we'll see uh, a lot of stuff there. I think um, because we're starting to adopt more, um, uh, you know, machine learning models and stuff in the kind of AI space, I think we'll start to see um, a lot more kind of innovative attacks um, there. Uh, not, 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 not two years ago, I think I, I was listening to one of the professors from the University of Warwick who was talking about um, some attacks that he had seen against machine learning models, including stuff like um, uh, the, uh, an ability to kind of exfiltrate the logic of the model without the server realizing. And like, I mean, that's a pretty complicated attack vector, but it can be extremely damaging um, once it's achieved. So, for example, insurers, right? Insurers use machine learning models to, 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 to determine, you know, who should get a loan, who shouldn't get a loan, right? And what the quote on your car insurance is. If uh, an attacker was able to um, exfiltrate that machine learning model, kind of figure out how to push its buttons to make it act weirdly, um, then you know they could trick it into giving loans to people who shouldn't be be receiving loans, or into to giving you know car insurance quotes for one pound instead of one thousand um, pounds. I think that uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff in the in the in the machine learning AI space. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and you know if companies are getting hit with their budgets, if we're going into a time where the economy is going to be difficult, we're probably going to see you know, more companies leveraging open source code as well to reduce costs. Definitely, exactly. Um, it is interesting though, because I was speaking to a VC the other day and they were saying how they believe that um, cyber may be one of the least affected um, uh, in, uh, you know, startups or you know, industry spaces um, from, a, from, a, from a budget perspective. And that's because in this particular crisis, we're only seeing digital usage increase because of COVID, you know, like people more so remote, you know, working from home or remote working and, uh, and people are using, you know, more digital services to, to you know, interact um, with, you know, whatever they need to do. Um, and so um, a lot of VCs are predicting that um, cyber might be one of the more resilient spaces right now. Uh, from a budgetary perspective, but I guess, you know, only, only time will tell. Yes, I guess so. And with all these new threats coming out, how do you make sure that you stay on top of learning and staying up to date? Um, I guess I read a lot. Um, so, you know, certain certain platforms like Y Combinator's Hack and Use, I, I find quite valuable. Um, they normally um, talk about kind of the, the more bleeding edge um, um, 
security threats or, or discoveries. Um, but I try to personally, I try to stay away from the books. I think that books um, on infosec, um, maybe not from a kind of a risk in a government's perspective, but from a like uh, categories of attacks, I think they become outdated too quickly. Um, not just because kind of attack methodologies are, are developing so quickly, but also because the technologies um, that underlie the services um, are, are changing so frequently. I mean, 15, 15 years ago, if you were you know, talking about API security, you would have basically only been talking about um, SOAP interfaces. Um, you know, 10 years ago, it was REST interfaces. And now today we have something new called GraphQL. Um, and so I think that uh, reading books becomes yeah, too, too out of date too quickly. Um, so, yeah, Internet resources, articles um, is, uh, you know, my go to. And what advice would you give to somebody who's thinking of coming into the industry? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so my controversial opinion here is I would say uh, stay away from the cyber specific courses. I think that if you're, if you're wanting to get into kind of the risk and governance space and stuff like CISP and CISM are really uh, valuable. But for anybody who wants to become like a pen tester, a security analyst, security engineer, I think that um, there are certainly more valuable certifications than stuff like the OSCP. Um, because, you know, if you do like, um, uh, I think that in most companies now, because of like kind of the, we're kind of in the era of digital transformation, the adoption of the cloud and whatnot. I think um, doing your learning on stuff like AWS or on um, Azure or Google, Google's cloud platform, kind of get a basic understanding of what networking looks like in these domains um, and, uh, and then kind of like look to, to move on from that. Even averaging stuff, uh, platforms like YouTube for stuff like pen testing tutorials, I think is really, really valuable. Um, um, but whereas like, I don't know, I guess like again, uh, 10 to 20 years ago, the kind of like the, the benchmark of if you want to get into this industry was stuff like taking um, like the CCNA. Um, but I think that, you know, classical networking is now um, quite outdated. Um, I think most most organizations are looking to, to more so leverage the cloud. Um, so, and uh, you know, in the cloud, the kind of the, the networking dom domain is really quite different. You know, you're no longer dealing with with routers and switches and, and gateways, you're dealing with VPCs and security groups and that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, big believer in, in taking kind of practical certifications for, um, for, for cloud vendors, um, you know, leveraging kind of YouTube, Udemy, those kind of um, institutions who, who deliver really great value but for a really great price. Uh, but I'm, I'm kind of skeptical on the industry certifications um, especially stuff like by ISC squared, um, just because, um, really quite expensive. You can get that kind of, uh, that, that instruction, um, elsewhere for cheaper, um, and their kind of whole policy of making you, you know, get credits each year so you can renew your, um, certification. I find that quite, I don't know, cheeky. Uh, I've already paid a few thousand pounds or whatever it might be to, to become, you know, a certified ethical hacker or whatever, uh, but now I have to pay more each year to, to keep that 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 certification. Well, I, th I think that is a really good point because a lot of these cost a lot of money and people don't always know where to start. So having some free or lower cost resources can be really helpful, particularly if you're beginning. Yeah, definitely, exactly.
Now, we end each podcast with uh, 10 quick-fire questions, so uh, you need to just ask as qu- answer as quickly as you can. Sure. So, what turns you on professionally? Ambition, passion, and absolutely, you know, dedication to get to get the job done no matter you know whatever it costs whatever it means what turns you off professionally um procrastinating being you know um like yeah procrastination i think is a is a big turn off for me um and also like people who who pretend to know what they're talking about when they're kind of just you know waffling and and you know yeah, not not really knowing what they're talking about. How do you unwind? Um, uh, I think as a, as as most startups, I think unwinding is uh, a, a rare activity these days. But when I get the chance, uh, reading a book. Um, so I've I've uh, recently been reading. I think it's called Sapiens. Um, you know, it's a short history of kind of like the evolution of of sociology and psychology for mankind um or you know taking a walk um or uh yeah i'm not a big drinker so yeah taking a walk reading a book uh making some food what profession other than your own would you like to try i'd love to be um in the kind of um oh, what's it called uh, like agritech space um, I'd love to work for a startup or in a startup um, you know in, in vertical farming or hydroponics or any of that kind of stuff to 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 kind of you know take agriculture and make it more efficient uh, I think they're doing some really cool work and I'd, I'd love to be part of it what activity gives you the most energy hmm um, finally I don't know, activity, um, uh, mental activity. So uh, finally figuring out a solution to a really hard problem gives me uh, a real burst of energy. I remember sometimes I'll, I'll lay in bed at I don't know what time and be dwelling on a problem. All of a sudden, I, you know, have that, that you know, moment of clarity, I've figured it out, and I'll either you know, note it down in a, in a journal on the bedside or I'll get up and go to the computer and, and write some pseudocode or something. Who is your biggest inspiration? Hmm. Biggest inspiration? Richard Branson, I think. Uh, I think he, although he kind of gets some flack um, with regards to Virgin and, and some of its earlier years, I think that he's done a lot of really great good uh, in the UK um, and for entrepreneurs in general. Um, and so, yeah, uh, if I could be like him one day I'd love him him or, or, or Elon Musk uh, either either of them uh, yeah big 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 inspiration if you had to present a speech right now what one word would be its subject community you are at your best when you're doing what talking to people if today was the last day of your life what one lesson would you impart Just do it. <laughs> and if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Um, 
That's a tough one, right? <laughs> it's extremely tough. Um, I don't know. I'd love him to say something like that. I've, I've, uh, I don't know. I helped, uh, helped with world hunger or something. Well, I think you know. You're saying about your speech would be on community. There's, uh, there's definitely something there, and something there in terms of the, what the business is doing too, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, I, yeah, hopefully. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about the the startup journey. And uh, you know, I'm sure we're all looking forward to seeing what happens for you from here. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe. And for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.